You're listening to Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan, a For The Now media production. As ever, a big welcome to your number one sports podcast favourite. We move serenely from episode 55 to episode 56, probably not surprisingly, with the same mixture of great sports stories augmented by a superb guest from the world of motorcycle racing. My name is Tony Grundy. And mine's Andy Callahan. So you and Willie Carr were off on another of your road trips, weren't you? Uh, it wasn't a road trip this time, Tony, although it did um, end up being a bit of a magical mystery tour in terms of getting to uh, Barnet Copthorne. We went to watch the Saracens Quins rugby uh, semi-final in the Premiership, and it was at Sarri's ground. Um, what I would say is uh, plastic pitch, plastic ground, plastic club. Um, not a big Saris fan, as uh, as you can imagine, being a Quinns fan. But uh, yeah, it's in it's in Barnet Copthall, and uh, normally that would be Northern Line out to sort of the middle of nowhere, um, yeah. or one branch of the Northern Line, and then a fifteen minute walk. But as we got onto the Northern Line from Kings Cross, uh, they were closing it off at Archway, so uh, we were then both on Google and iPhone apps and all sorts, trying to work out the best way via the map. And it was get a bus, then run around the corner and get another bus and then a walk. And thankfully, by that stage, there were a lot of fans. So you just followed crowd. But uh, yeah, so we so magical mystery tour before we'd even got there, but not not an expected road trip. No, but uh, result. Well, Saracens won. Um, Saracens deserved to win. They were the better team, I think. to be quite honest, it looked a game too far for Quinns. Quinns looked tired, um, and certainly in the second half. Now, I know a lot of people, I, I've never never played personally on an artificial pitch, but I know a lot of people say about these new 3G, 4G, 5G, 12G, whatever they are, pitches, that actually, by about 60 minutes in, if you're not used to it, the legs feel really heavy on them so it did look as though Quinns but then again in the first half Quinns looked heavy legged as well so I don't know if they can blame the pitch I think game too far Saracens are very very good at that they just suffocate teams they've got a really good defence they don't commit numbers where other teams have to in the breakdown and things and they just played a much better game it was a very testy tetchy angry affair and we'll talk about that a bit later on in our get a grip but yeah. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was a local derby and no love lost between the two clubs normally, but Saracens are into the final um and deservedly so on the day they were very much the better team. And they'll be up against Northampton Saints. Uh, yeah. no, they'll be up against Leicester Tigers who beat Northampton Saints in the other semi-final. So, yeah, that was a wet, uh, an East Midlands derby. Um and again, uh Tigers played really well and deserved the win. That was a that was a more entertaining game. We stayed on at the Sarri's ground because um, the queues were less for the uh, Guinness bar at that point. And uh, so we stayed on and watched the game uh, on the big screens. So, uh, yeah, so a good day out. A good day was had by all. But, yeah, sadly, not not the result that we were hoping for. All right. And the finals this weekend. Any predictions? Yep. Um, I can't. I, I really wouldn't see further than Saracens. I think they, they've got a point to prove. You know, two seasons ago, they were bottom of the table after they were... Um, penalised for paying the players and not following the salary cap and all the shenanigans that went on there. Um, so they didn't win that year. 
they didn't win last year because they got relegated as a result of their salary cap breaches. They had a year on the naughty step down in the championship. So I yeah. think they've, they, they've, they've got a bit of a point to prove. You can see it simmering there. that They're thinking, you know, a lot of these teams, they won it the two years before all that happened. So I think their thinking is we want to show you that you've only won it because we weren't there. And uh, I think that would be, that sort of struck me as their approach to it. So they've really got a point to prove and quite often that can be a big motivator. But Leicester, if they win it, it'll be their first title in about seven years, eight years. And it's, it's good to see, it's good for England to see a strong Leicester team back in contention. Okay. Um, I was dodging between football, cricket, golf and gardening, my mixture of things. But going back to that cricket, as we record this, what a fantastic result for England against New Zealand. I watched the last probably 20 overs and uh, Bairstow slogging. Apparently, and this is a fact from Sky, they said that was the most boundaries ever hit in a test match. Which is, you know, I mean, it was like a one-day game, and and Besto just decided, and he scored his hundred in no time at all. Yeah, it was, it was the second fastest um, Test century by an England player, and he only missed it by I think about three or four balls. Uh, you know, he was on ninety-nine with two balls to go to get the record. And then New Zealand brought the field right up. And uh, yeah, but then the good thing was he didn't try and do anything stupid and force it. You know, you sort of look at it and say, team man. I mean, to give the viewer, uh, the listeners, not the viewers, the listeners a view behind the null and void curtain. I know we were doing our editorial on Sunday and speaking about it. And we pretty much had it nailed on as a high scoring draw at that point. But what a load of drama. I mean, at T... England still needed 160 uh-huh. of 38 remaining overs. Now, in, in T20, in one day, you'd pretty much fancy a team to get that and smash it. Well, Bairstow and Stokes just went into T20 mode in the test match. I mean, so 38 <clears throat> overs, 160 needed. Ten overs later, England had won it. 2-0 two two up in the series, and they look like a proper team again. It's amazing transformation, but mm. they... They just look different again. And obviously, within that, Root has been superb as well, Ollie Pope. But it, it was a, a spread thing, a real team effort. Mm. Now, um, I got Manx TT uh, to talk about. It finished on Saturday. But rather than me talk about it, tonight's guest is a real expert. And we're going to come uh, to him a little later on because they've had a gap without the TT the last couple of years. We hear all about this year's event and the history of what is the most famous motorcycle event in the world. Nations League. Do I, after last week, need to say any more? Some people would say, <laughs> no, you don't. Well, well some people would say that whatever you'd said last week. But... <laughs> well, that is true. Well, I will, if only to say it really is dire. The England-Italy game summed it up for me. Italy were determined not to lose and England incapable of winning, I think, because they're they're knackered, to be honest. You're talking about that with the rugby players. Mm. Um, A dreadful, dreadful tournament and made worse by the fact, even as we record this tonight, England are playing yet again another game against Hungary. I I really think it's dreadful. Let's lighten the mood, shall we? I get (laughs) depressed when I talk about Nations League. Horse racing. It's 28 years since this has happened. 
two horses with the same name racing in the same race, two Sierra Nevadas, one from England, the other from America. They were matched up in Ireland. The American horse, as I understood it, was first home. Interestingly, there are actually two Sierra Nevadas in the world, mountain ranges, one in Spain and one in California. Don't say we don't tell you stuff on Mullen Vaughan. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really feel sorry for the commentator there because you can imagine uh, him having to go, oh, and it's Sierra Nevada leading by Sierra Nevada and Sierra Nevada <laughs> overtakes Sierra Nevada. Um, and yeah, so I think apparently the commentator was having to use the the trainer's name, trainer's name. Uh, yeah. to distinguish the two. So yeah, letting the listeners know or the viewers on the commentary and the television know which horse it was by the trainer's name as well. So, uh, yeah, what, a, what an absolute muddle to be in. But I, I've never heard of that. You know, we all know that I have a, a passing interest in horse racing or as, as as we otherwise call it, a passing interest in handing my money over to the bookmakers. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> but I've never, ever heard of two horses in the same race. 28-year gap, anyway. Um, so, uh, next up, rugby again. But uh, I wanted, Andy, you to talk about Phil Bennett. Yeah, unfortunately, really sad news that Phil Bennett has passed away, the former Wales and Lions um, outside half. Um, great player. I was never lucky enough. I'm not old enough to have seen him play live, but you watch the footage of that 73 Lions game against the... Uh, sorry, the 73 Barbarians game against the New Zealand All Blacks with the very famous Gareth Edwards try. And it all starts with Phil Bennett jinking and turning his way out of... Um, trouble in his own 22 before that lovely flowing move which is you know the tradition of the barbars is barbarians is run the ball from everywhere so you know that very much so and then the 74 lions the um, unbeaten the invincibles in South Africa that were led by Willie John McBride and Phil Bennett you know was instrumental in that um, lovely story told I was lucky enough to meet him at, uh, a couple of times but at a Zurich golf day when I was working for Zurich and he was there along with Clive Woodward and Clive Woodward um, I will say didn't seem overly happy to be there even though he was paying paid to be there and Zurich were one of the big sponsors of the rugby and the RFU at the time Clive didn't seem overly happy I think he had other <coughs> things on his mind but uh, Phil Bennett absolute gem and was chatting away to everyone and telling stories from the 74 lions and uh that and about how when he cut got his leg very badly cut by the razor sharp studs of the south africans willie john the big um ulster captain came over and said you know you've got to stay on the pitch i need you you know this is the game if we win this we can't lose the series and uh if if if, if you need carrying the rest of the week I will carry you on my back everywhere we go. So Willie John, good to his word. Phil Bennett stays on. They win the game. And then they go off for a week's R&R, &R, which in rugby terms is pretty much drinking, at a game reserve. And it's one of these that dark of night. They're walking back to their huts. Phil Bennett on Willie John's back. And they hear a lion roaring not too far away. But, of course, players running in all directions, running for their lives, Willie John McBride running with Phil Bennett on his back. Phil Bennett gets hit by a tree branch on his head, falls back into the path, and he's going, you know, it's pitch black. Willie John, Willie John, where are you? You said you'd carry me. And Willie John with a few expletives to the tune of, stuff that, there's a lion. It's every man for himself now, boys. 
Excellent. <laughs> yeah, so a, a lovely guy, and he, he had some amazing stories, but, you know, a great player from that um, Welsh <clears> team that were so dominant in the 70s. And yet, you know, thoughts go out to his family and his friends and all of those in Wales that loved watching him play. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with those sentiments. Um, similar range to myself. So, yeah. Um, golf. The first Saudi event has completed at the Centurion Club. We were talking about it last week with mm. contrasting views on whether it was a success or not. View diametrically opposed views. The important thing is it's happened and the golf world is in disarray, I think. Bearing in mind it coincides the Canadian Open, it did. The two sides spent times comparing and contrasting. Intriguingly, intriguingly, the PGA has suspended 17 players that have signed for the LIV Saudi group, which the American World Golf have yet to comment on. But the Asian tour, another big tour, has specifically said it has no problem with the Saudi events. So groupings are happening all over the place. Big power plays going on. Um, yeah, I think with that one as well, the, I know that a number of the players that have been um, kicked off of the PGA Tour have actually applied to the American DP World Tour yeah, to be yeah. uh, able to join that. So it'll be interesting to see whether the Americans sort of come out in support of the PGA Tour or whether they do their own thing that's in the best interest of their tour. Another interesting one there, I don't know if you saw that um, the, the it's hit some controversy as well, not just because of the, the tour, but the, the journalist who'd originally, when it was all being first released, um, had sort of released his interviews with Phil Mickelson, who made some maybe not so uh, glowing references to Saudi Arabia. And Greg Norman at the time was really unhappy. Well, this journalist was actually when Phil Mickelson was doing his um, <clears throat> talking at the tea, the tea box um, ahead of the tournament, was actually kicked out by muscle bound security. Um, yeah. And Greg Norman then sent him a text saying, I'm sorry, didn't know this had happened. And now there's a photo come out with Greg Norman watching on as the security kicked this journalist out. So uh, I don't think that one's going to go away either. They seem to be miring themselves with problems every which way they turn. I mean, the journalist can count himself lucky because we know normally how the Saudis deal with journalists. Yeah, quite so, quite so. Okay, brief one on F1, Verstappen wins. Hamilton finishes fourth, but with a sore Baku. Oh, really? <laughs> you see why I did that? <laughs> I'll tell you what, yeah, you've got to be so quick. Um, <laughs> moving on. Moving Contact on very swiftly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, moving on. Mike Butterworth, the recent guest on Null and Void, uh, and now a regular listener, he said he enjoyed the last episode. He said, particularly your piece, Tony, on Get a Grip on the Nations League. And then he put hashtag Victor Meldrew. I don't believe it. How very dare you, Mr. Butterworth. Anyway, thanks, Mike. I'm sure you got the message very clearly about my thoughts on that. Um, second one I've got is Sarah Kirkham. Her big event is coming up next weekend. So I asked her if she'd write a few lines just to tell us how she's doing in preparation, because I know her training has been immense and she's mm. doing very well just so to remind she said, our listeners she's undertaking the half oh, iron man event in swansea isn't she 70.3 miles quite um, right swim bike and run 
Yeah, quite right to remind people. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, she says, so I'm now just days away from the toughest physical challenge I've ever set myself, a half Ironman. It seems like five minutes ago when I registered, but all of a sudden it's here. Physically, I'm as prepared as I can be. I followed for the last 12 months a pretty disciplined training routine. You definitely have, Sarah. Initially focusing on the swim, then the bike, and then running. It's been challenging at times, but I've also had lots of fun and enjoyment along the way. Vis visited places I wouldn't normally have visited and spent lots of wonderful time in the great outdoors. Last weekend was my final prep and check. I did the distances under race conditions to A, one, get my mindset to say, yes, I can do it. B, to check the gear is all working and performing. C, use of my race nutrition to ensure I was fueling my body for optimum performance. Physically, I feel I have uh, a fighting chance to make it to the finish line. I bet you have. Mentally, it's been a roller coaster of emotions from, as she said, panic, exclamation mark, I'm not doing it, too nervous, apprehension, and now excitement. I'm really looking forward to the experience, fingers crossed, making it to the finish line for the big slice of pizza and beer. You can relate to that, Andy. So good luck, Sarah. We will hear from you live next week to tell us how the event went. Well done, my girl. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing that. And really, I'd echo that. Really good luck to Sarah. <laughs> I love the fact she's talking about getting the right nutrition there before the race um, or during the race and then a beer and pizza afterward for refueling. So uh, I think definitely well earned by the time she gets to the end of that course. So, uh, yeah, really good luck, Sarah. A brief note I've got from Simon. There's an update. He's going to be away for a couple of weeks. Well earned break he's got coming up. But he says... The raffle tickets were printed and out in circulation. On Friday, the printers were able to give me 40 books, five tickets in each book. I started selling these on Saturday morning over text messages, etc. Two hours later, all 40 books were sold. I've just collected another 400 books. This will keep me busy. The raffle is due to take place on Saturday, the 3rd of September, ahead of the youth uh, football tournament so well done Simon you definitely deserve a break mate enjoy that as well mm -hmm. so Andy over to you now get a grip get a grip uh yeah and I know we've talked a lot on this show about rugby and head injuries and how important it is to protect the players both in training and in matches and I don't feel I'm going against that when I talk about this one. It's more about the way that the the interpretation of that law and about especially the high tackle law is being refereed in games. It's ridiculously inconsistent. On Saturday, there were three players, two from Saracens and one from Quinns, all given yellow cards for this, which means they spend 10 minutes off the field and then they come back on. The difference in the three tackles was the difference between a shoulder making contact maybe just with the top of the shoulder and then the head uh, with very little mitigation and what a lot of people felt should have been a straight red card and I think the um, rugby authorities are still looking at it so Elliot Daly could still end up missing the final 
for Saracens this week if he's retrospectively banned. I've got to admit, at the time when I saw it in real time, before seeing it on the big screen, I said to Billy and the Saracens fan that was sat to the other side of me, it didn't quite feel a red card. A yellow, but at the very top end. But if you bring that down to a yellow, that's the standard. The next one, a Quinn's one, very similar. And you could have argued red, yellow, or, you know, I know in New Zealand they're now trying this orange card where you're off for 20 minutes. That player can't return, but another player can come on instead of him. That might be the solution. I don't know. But those two have set the sound. Then very later on in the game, um, uh, Alex Lazowski for um, Saracens makes a, a flapping arm tackle. And I kid you not, it must have been like his fingertips maybe caught the top of the head of the player that was going past. And that's a yellow card. Now, if you're saying that a full-on shoulder-to-head contact is yellow, you can't then say that a fingertip that makes contact just as someone's going past is yellow. There's no consistency. And again, referees, some referees are calling red cards, some are calling yellow cards, some are calling nothing. There is just no consistency at all. I mean, Luke Pierce, I would say on Saturday, and it's unlike me on these sort of shows to criticise referees, anyone who ever saw me play and saw me coach knows that I was uh, always very vocal in my criticism of referees. But Luke Pierce on Saturday, I think I was heard to shout from the crowd at one point, uh, come on, ref, open your eyes. You're missing a good game. He had a terrible game. You could say he was consistent. He was consistently atrocious for everyone. So I guess two get a grips here. One is the yellow card situation for head tackles. Either they're all red cards and, and we really clamp down on it and players change their approach, or you have a tiered system and scale, which if they apply it properly, there's no way that they should have been the same penalty for the same, those two offences on Saturday, completely different. And then secondly, just the standard of refereeing over the last year in rugby. It had got really good, you know, Nigel Owens, Wayne Barnes, um, Joel Jout, um, you know, those sort of guys, brilliant. But the, some of the premiership refereeing this season and games I've watched on Saturday, games I've watched live, has been abominable. So I would say to referees in the rugby community around the head tackles and the yellow cards player safety has to be first but get a grip on how you're actually applying it okay should we raise the tone i think we should i think we need to (laughs) (laughs) so we'll go to our special guest tonight Uh, he, he has like me spent many years in the radio industry he's still broadcasting today on his hometown radio station manx radio Apart from radio, his link with Null and Void is, well, Mike Dinsdale. They, they are lifetime friends, uh, our own interviewee talent spotter himself. So another it man is, who's been Dinsdaled. He's been Dinsdale, yeah. It is that link that, with the Isle of Man that we want to explore tonight, and particularly uh, the 2022 Manx TT. It's just happened. So we've invited George Ferguson to tell us all about the event. And he's grown up with that event and he's got deep knowledge and understanding of why it's said to be the most famous and in some cases the most dangerous motorbike race in the world. George, welcome to Null and Void. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'd, I'd like to say at the offset to Andy, um, as regards Phil Bennett, what a remarkable man 
and what a remarkable rugby player who was told at the outset that he would never, ever make a rugby player. And he confounded the critics and did extremely well. Mm, uh, yeah. So, Andy, I understand that. Yeah, for someone to captain his country and captain the British and Irish Lions, I think, you know, that's a phenomenal achievement for, I, I hope whoever it was that sat there and said to him, you'll never make a rugby player, sat there for many years afterward going, boy, was I wrong about that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's talk about the TT. Um, I started uh, in 1987 uh, and I started uh, Radio TT, which was a, 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 an instrument which basically gave the fans and the world audience, uh, Radio TT, uh, which was a remarkable event in so much that what we tried to do was to encapsulate the festival and the enjoyment of the festival. And by doing that, we had the commentaries, we had the outside broadcasts, we went to Ramsey, we went to Laxey, we went to Peel in the Isle of Man, which were frequented by bikers galore. Um, and it worked remarkably well. And it's still going today, which is a great testament to the event. So I can't complain uh, about the TT. I can't complain uh, about the way Radio TT has run over the years. Uh, it started in 1907, I believe. Um, that was the first TT. And 1917. Was it? No. Well, I well, you say 1917. I say 19. Uh, I say 2000. Uh, sorry, uh, 1907. The reason I say that is because it started. Um, just down from my house, in actual fact, uh, onto Quarterbridge and then along to um, uh, Braddon Bridge and through Glenvine and so forth. But uh, having said that, I wasn't there. <laughs> no, neither were you. No, was I. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely wasn't. Um, but, but, but I mean. <clears throat> What I, I can't even get my head around because I mean, what was it sort of like motorized penny farthings in those days, George? Or you know, because well, no, I can't no, get my head around what the bikes were like. Well, the bikes were in the innovation, um, and the the first the first lap was thirty five miles an hour. That was it, and they had to stop at at Keppel Gate and open a gate uh, <laughs> and carry on. And uh, they did just that. However, um, it's progressed now. And the average speed, and this is absolutely frightening, the average speed around the course currently is 135 miles an hour. The average. Average, average oh speed. So and, when you, and when you consider that that is between bricks and walls and roundabouts, etc., it's staggering. And, and is it, George, you know, people say it's the most famous motorbike race in the world, and I'm sure that's right. You know, 
whether 1907 or 1917, the reality is, for a very long time, even people that don't know about motorbike racing would know about Manx TT. They'd know of it. So it's got a fantastic reputation. But it, it's all, I think you said to me, you know, you're going from 200 miles an hour down to five miles an hour, and, mm-hmm. and, and in some cases into a brick wall. You know, it's that dangerous. Is it? Has it always been that dangerous? Has it become more so because of the speeds they're travelling? I think, I think it's obviously become more dangerous uh, because of the speed that they're travelling now. Um, but yes, uh, it, it, it has always been dangerous. It's always there have been people killed riding the race ad infinitum and it's as simple as that however there have been people killed mountaineering yeah year in year out so therefore it's it it is equatable and you can't argue the, the the fact that the guys who actually race the races want to do it and they know the score and they understand the the risks and that's what they do and we do that on a daily basis by walking across the street has there ever been any pressure though george from sort of external authorities because you know in, in this day and age we almost try to take risk out of everything and wrap everyone up <laughs> in cotton wool and you know if it's even slightly dangerous for you someone somewhere you know, the fun police come and slap a no notice on it. Is there ever, has there ever been any external pressure to say, actually, you know, because it's a number of fatalities, I know Mm -hmm. this year it was, you know, quite high. Was it five or six fatalities? Mm -hmm. Has there ever been any pressure to go, actually, no, can't go ahead anymore? No, is the answer, because Mm -hmm. the ACU run the entire event. Um, and the Isle of Man government funds the event. Um, And as long as people are prepared to race, then that's fine. Mm -hmm. The only time that there will be a problem is if there are not sufficient marshals on the course, and it's 37 and a half miles long. So don't forget, mm. it's it's a huge course. It's not uh, it's not a, a short circuit by any manner of means. So the marshals are important, and also as long as the insurance is paid, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, and so the the course. I mean, obviously, our dear listener may not know the detail. You said it was thirty five miles long. It's thirty seven. So seven, <clears throat> but <clears throat> I've been to the Isle of Man, actually to the radio station that you worked at when mm-hmm. I was running my consultancy business, and it's magnificent countryside there. So it, 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 it you know, it must for the spectators, it must be absolutely brilliant to find a location and so, but the whole island effectively, in its normal function, comes to a halt over a ten-day period, doesn't it, with the qualifying mm-hmm. and everything else. What happens is that we aim towards the TT. We aim towards the event. We don't actually think about Christmas. We actually think about the TT. <laughs> and Christmas is our TT, in essence. Um, I, I know that uh, uh, Christmas is a different ball game, but um, what happens is we count down to the TT. 
We know full well that there are 87 days to go until the TT, 67 days to go until the TT, and then it's four days, and then it's Eureka. Here we are, we're happening. And the public come over, the boats in the Isle of Man, the steam packet, uh, ferry everybody across to the Island Man. And it's lovely to see them. It's glorious to see the Isle of Man fall again. When I was a boy, which was a long time ago, um, when I was a boy, it, it was glorious in so much that there were somewhere in the region of uh, 800,000 people coming to the Isle of Man on a daily basis, on, on a, a, a weekly basis, because the, the situation as regards uh, low fares to Spain, low fares to Menorca didn't happen, hadn't happened. And therefore, it, they came to the Isle of Man. It was a way of coming across the water uh, and enjoying themselves, and they did. However, um, the TT has shrunk dramatically. Um, and for example, there were 40 odd thousand beds years and years ago when I was a boy. Um, and now there are somewhere in the region of 4,000 beds. And that has a compounding effect on the punters coming to stay at the TT. And they stay in tents, they stay in homestays. Uh, and I mean, we had people here staying with us um, because, uh, well, 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 we did <laughs> primarily to get a carpet upstairs in the front room. Anyway, um, <laughs> but it, it, it is, it is a, a, a glorious event without a shadow of a doubt, um, and one that is vital for the Isle of Man. In terms of the economy, you mean? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And the, the industries, the, the, the tourist industry functions purely and simply for the TT. I would imagine almost and, once one year finishes, it's almost you know, a day or two to draw breath, and then the planning for the next year begins. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, and it's 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 something that you you can't you can't describe because, well, I say you can. No, you can't describe it because it's something that's inbred within you and you suddenly believe that the TT is the function, is the the place to be and is absolutely vital to the Isle of Man. Yeah, and I suppose, therefore, the two years of COVID, so it was a three-year span, effectively, wasn't it? Because you had the event. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, that, is, that, is the, that is one of the major problems. Yeah. Um, yeah. That this year we had several deaths, which are appalling and unfortunate. However, the guys know exactly what they're doing. But because of the three-year gap, they haven't practiced. They haven't been around the circuit. Mm -hmm. They haven't done this and so forth. And therefore, it's, it's a problem. Yeah. It's a problem that is not surmountable. 
something interesting you said to me, George, the other day when we were talking, because I was saying the macho male thing of, you know, I know it's dangerous, but I'm going to do it anyway. You, you put me in my place quite firmly by saying, by the way, over 50% of the entrants are female. And I was quite staggered by that. Is that, mm. you know, has that been a, a more recent thing or, or, or what? Um, I don't know whether 50% is the correct phrase. All right. <laughs> it's the correct figure. I made that up. However, <laughs> however. Um, let's let's brush that aside. Um, females have been around for ages, and um, the the first woman I think was in 1930 uh, who ran who who rode in the race. Uh, but there are people who have uh, ridden in the race subsequently, uh, and it's it's females are. Difficult to understand in, in some. Well, very difficult <laughs> yeah, <to understand. laughs> I mean, that, yeah, that, that's not just motor racing, though, George. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, Females, you get us in trouble, you get us but, in trouble George. Yeah, I know, yes, I, I can see that. Uh, females have a problem in so much that they they have to ride the bike, and the bike is absolutely vicious. It, it's not easy to ride a bike. And to control a bike and to actually make sure that the bike goes in the direction it's supposed to go in is not easy. And therefore, I think a female, hang on, whoa, screams, screams of derision. Uh, however, I think that females are a part of the TT, but not necessarily the major part. Okay, but I, I mean, I, I just, it wasn't in my head at all that I thought it was males predominantly, but, but that's an interesting as, aspect as well. So there are changes going on, but I, I was fascinated by some of the names. For instance, Michael Dunlop, and I'm thinking, mm -hmm. Dunlop, Dunlop, Max TT, um, his dad, Joey, 26 wins. So, so it's not only a, an individual, but very often a family that follows, you know, people like Joey Dunlop all those years ago. Name some of the big names. John McGuinness, I mean, Peter mm -hmm. Hickman. Yeah. Well, the Dunlop family are renowned as Northern Irish racers. Uh, Joey died in Estonia. Uh, Robert died and uh, as a, uh, uh, in the Northwest 200, uh, William has died and Michael is still going. Yeah. So all of a sudden you suddenly realize that all these people have gone mm. and you think to yourself, why? Because that's the name of the game. And I was talking to a, uh, a guy who had ridden the TT and who's in fact, in actual fact, has won several TT. Um, and he wrote an autobiography. And I said to him, I said, talk to me about the thoughts that you have vis-a-vis -vis, um, the fear and the emotions, because in your book, you have no emotion whatsoever. There's absolutely nothing 
in uh, as regards emotion. And he said, I have to block it out. And that's exactly what they do. They block it out completely. Oh, right, right. And it's it's quite frightening. And if you take a look at motor uh, Formula One guys as well, uh, it, 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 the speed with which they're going is it, remarkable. And yet they're safe because they're not racing between walls, between roundabouts, between traffic lights or anything of that nature. They're racing on a purpose-built circuit. Whereas in the Isle of Man, it's not a purpose-built circuit. Mm. I mean, my brother works as a chef for one of the Formula One um, teams in Oxfordshire. And he said the one that the drivers all talk about hating is uh, Monaco in terms of the course. Although they say the yeah. actual event is a great event, they say that's the one they find the toughest to drive. Because, mm -hmm. again, it's a, it's a street course, isn't it? It's, it is. Uh, yeah, so yeah. again, you know, whilst all right, you haven't got to worry about traffic lights when you're um, racing on race day, it's a street course and therefore it's not the same turns, the same banking, everything like that, that mm -hmm. they would get on a, a purpose-built racetrack. So yeah. I would imagine, yeah, very much the case with uh, with the riders in the, in the TT. What I mean, also, George, I guess when people talk about that sort of blocking out the fear, again, is that them sort of trying to put a machismo on it or is it do you think that they actually they can't afford to think about it because almost if you think the more you think about it the more it's likely to happen i think you're probably right they can't afford to think about it mm. uh, and that's the that that is it, it's a, a worry to a certain extent uh, in so much that you you all of a sudden you, you realize that these guys are blocking out an emotion which is well at the end of the day, we all have it and we mm. all feel it and we all cry and we all sh scream, um, but they can't because they have to be so, they're professionals and that's what they do for a living. And it's, I suppose it's, it's like a, a mountaineer climbing Everest. They never know when they're going to die. They hope they're not, mm. but that happens, and it does. Likewise, if you climb um, Mount Blanc, again, you can die. If you climb um, Scorfell Pike, you can die. It's as simple as that. And these guys, they understand the, 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 they understand the fact that they can die, and they blank it out, mm. which is quite frightening. Mm. Sort of different. So, I mean, we, our guest last week, uh, Henry, he talked about um, mountaineers, skiers and avalanches, and he's an mm -hmm. avalanche expert. But they're almost, you know, the work that he does and skiers do is to try and prevent that happening where, you know, so people are aware of it and conscious of it and therefore do something to avoid triggering avalanches and you're saying mm -hmm. it's almost the other way with the riders they're just almost if i ignore it it will go away and it yeah. won't happen yeah yeah and it's 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 quite sad really but that's the way it is and, and that's the way it has been since 1907 
or 1917. So, uh, one or the other, yeah. Right. So, George, <laughs> in terms of, if, maybe it's an impossible question to answer, but what would be your greatest memory? You must have so many, but is there something that comes to mind you think, that was the moment I fell in love with it, or that decided me forever it's going to be TT? I don't know. I mean, I'm surmising. Was there, was there any one thing? I think possibly you wearing lycra. <laughs> I, suddenly, I suddenly feel very unwell <laughs> with that mental image. That wasn't quite what I was looking for there, mate. <laughs> no, no. Um, my, my, greatest, my greatest memory um, was watching Agostini um, right. and Bob McIntyre race each other and Jeff Duke and Mike Halewood uh, racing each other in the 60s. Um, yeah. And I was very privileged to be able to watch that uh, and enjoy it. Didn't actually understand anything about it, but I enjoyed it. And then coming back to the Isle of Man in 1986, seven, and taking Radio TT uh, to uh, the heights that it went to, um, it was a joy to be able to be involved with the riders, to be involved with the, with the trade uh, and to be involved um, with the event. But what I found when I left Manx Radio, I, I left Manx Radio and I, I rejoined. Um, when I left Manx Radio, somebody said to me, um, do, you do yourself a favour, George, buzz off get yourself on a plane now because you're like a bad smell all you're doing is hanging around and you're just criticizing go away now so i went to france and i went to france for two weeks and i came back and i realized that the tea wasn't the most important thing in my life right. whereas before it was so so, so were you able to go back to like enjoying it a bit more yeah yeah I, I, do you know what i haven't done i haven't seen a race this year why because i can't be bothered because i've seen it all i've done it all i've been there and now i, I can't be bothered S silly I know because I live literally uh, 400 yards from the course. And if I went down my road, down there, I'd be on Bray Hill in 400 yards. Wow. So, so you, you literally, it's been, the event's been on and you haven't mm -hmm. gone to watch no. the event? No. I Nothing. Mean, that, that's a real shocker. I didn't know that. But I mean, I, yeah. I, so that... Is that cumulatively the effect of all the work you've done it and said, been there, done it? Probably, yes. Mm. Um, because I've, I've worked for 20-odd years mm. and it's been a question of starting in October, going to the motor, motorbike show uh, at the NEC, at the N, N, uh, whatever it's called, NEC, Birmingham. Yeah. That'll do. Uh, going, going down there and uh, basically being involved from 
October through until May. Right. Yeah, and that's a big now, big chunk of the year. Oh, it's a, well, it's it's a, it's it's a heck of a chunk. Mm. And not only that, but I'm also fighting commercially. So I'm having to make money for the radio station. Yeah. So I'm having to to fly that kite as well. And it's it's a hard game, but it's I mean, I've enjoyed it. I've done it. Um, and I've now walked away from it. So you do a, a, a still a weekend program? I do, Mac yes, Radio? I do. Uh, fortunately, uh, one, one of the nice joys uh, <coughs> is that I can now go back to radio and basically sit in a padded room, talk gibberish, and play music, <laughs> which is exactly what I wanted to do when I first started out at the age of 18. That's it's a fascinating story, George. I mean, and you, you know, as you said, your family. Well, you didn't say, but your family was involved effectively. Was your family involved in medical rescue? Did I read that correctly somewhere? Uh, my my mother and father were both doctors. Right. Yes. So, and, and my fa my father was at Laurel Bank uh, on the course. Um, he he went out to Laurel Bank every year for twenty years. So there, an involvement through many, many years there. Mm -hmm. So I, I, in, a, in a way, I can sort of understand, you know, because it's, I suppose it's a bit the radio industry that we've both been part of. That, that evolved in mainland UK in, in, a, in a way that I personally didn't go along with. And mm -hmm. I set my own company up to train people within radio on the back of that because I could see which way it was going. So to a certain extent, I can... So empathise with what you're saying. You've had years and years and years of involvement, but here's a chance not to be involved and actually do what you really love, which is radio broadcasting. And the fact that I don't have to worry about the bottom line. Yeah. That, the fact that I don't have to manage people. And managing people is the most pain in the neck. <laughs> when If you have somebody who is talented, you can't manage them. No, it's an well, impossibility. Yeah, and then yeah. the other other side, if you have someone who's not interested, you can't manage them. You know, there's sort of yeah, yeah, you know, the skill and the will type. You know, on a, yeah. any four box matrix that I work in training, so corporate training on four box matrixes that we all love. You know, yeah, sort of the skill and the will. It's either you know very high skill and therefore the talent, and you know they're always looking for the next thing. Yeah. Or the low will, and you're trying to drag them along reluctantly. Absolutely. And somewhere in between, you get a few that it actually works with. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but it, I've I've been very fortunate. Uh, I mean, I've I started in 1968, and I'm still broadcasting, which I think yeah. is quite a, it's quite an achievement, really. It, it's it's very possible, uh, null and void, null and voiders, as we call them, um, listening to this tonight will actually be thinking, I had no idea about motorcycle racing. And this guy's given me a real insight into an event that is worldwide famous. And I, I really do thank you for that. But equally, your honesty in terms of where you are now, uh, uh, having had all of that knowledge and family involvement as well, and sharing that knowledge with us tonight. I really do appreciate it, George. That's fine. I, I, I thank you very much indeed for the, for the opportunity to disgorge myself 
Andy? Yeah, and, and if people want to hear more of you, George, um, on the weekend show, again, just let them know where is it they can actually get a hold of that now that, you know, digital radio allows us to listen to everything from anywhere. Six o'clock in the morning until 8.30 on a Saturday, six o'clock in the morning till nine 9.30 on a Sunday. Um, and I also... I sit in for people when they're on holiday and so forth, but that's, I just enjoy it. But George, that's Max Radio people should be looking out for. Yes, Max it is. Yes. Yeah. 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 Not everybody knows that, but I, I have been there. It's the same same place or have they moved to... Yes, it is. Yeah, it's exactly the same place. Yeah. yeah. And that, I enjoyed uh, my flights over there and visits there. That was fascinating just to see that kind of, the principality as such. I, I yeah. enjoyed it. But lovely, lovely countryside. So thank you for giving us your time tonight. And and hopefully there's there's a reason why we can be talking in the future as Max TT continues, but not necessarily on that subject, because you've got such a wide variety of interests anyway. Cheers, George. Really appreciate it. Thank you so Take much. Take care. Thanks so much, George. Excellent. Well, I think, you know, that was a real insight. And I, I love George's um honesty in terms of where he is now on TT, uh, but a great story. And it, yeah. and it paints a great picture, it didn't in my mind anyway, an event I've never been to, but I was aware even in that short period of time when I was going to the island, how big the TT was in people's minds there. Really well, useful. I think for a lot of people, you know, that's almost, it, it's what they know the island for, isn't it? You know, myself, I, I, I will admit I've never been there, but I, I knew of the TT. And everything like that. The only other other sort of one that I always point out is that again, it's sort of it's you see the Isle of Man as a, a separate team in the Commonwealth Games. So I always find that really interesting that you know as a separate team. It is indeed. Okay, well that brings us towards the clo close of this episode uh, this week, and this was a really interesting insight there in a sport that I. I don't know any detail about at all, but I know a hell of a lot more after talking with mm. George tonight. And obviously some great sports stories there that are going to evolve as ever over the next week. And we hope you'll be with us next I said hope last week, didn't I? You, I don't hope. You must be there next week because there's going to be more of the same. We love you being there. See you next week. Thanks you so much, folks. Take care. We'll see you next week. Null and Void with Tony Grundy and Andy Callahan. Together, they don't add up to much. If you have a sports story, you can contact the team on nandv at forthenow.co.uk.